Will you please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, the book of Acts in chapter 11. We'll be looking at a number of passages in the book of Acts, but we'll have several in Acts 11. We have some Bibles for you, and these brothers have them. They're going to make their way to the back, and if you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get you one that is marked at Acts chapter 11. I recently read a biography of Sergeant Shriver. Some of you may know who that uh, was. He's now deceased, but he was the first head of the Peace Corps in the Kennedy administration. He was the architect of the War on Poverty in the Johnson administration. He served as our ambassador to France, and he was a candidate for the vice presidency in the 1972 election on the Democratic ticket. Now, by the way, Sergeant is not a title. It's really his name, Sergeant Shriver. And he died just three years ago, and last year one of his sons, Mark, wrote an account of his life. And in it, he recounted the events of Sergeant Shriver's 95 years, both large and small. And there were many large initiatives to speak of in that book. He created the Head Start program, the Job Corps, the Legal Services Corporation, which provides legal aid to the poor and many, many others. But he starts the book by telling the stories of people who had been touched by his dad's life. Though Sergeant Shriver was a wealthy man, his son wrote that he had requested to be, quote, buried in a sack like the Trappist monks he so admired. He says, when I tried to satisfy this request, I learned the government prohibited such interment for public health reasons. But I did find that Trappist monks in Iowa were building coffins. I studied the website and chose a walnut box, finely crafted but simple. I phoned the monks to go over the details. A little while later, the director called me back, and he told me he had met my dad once and would do whatever I asked. He said that it would be an honor to help because dad was such a, quote, good man. And over the coming days, he says, I heard that phrase, a good man, time and again. Some of the more startling instances of hearing that phrase came back to me, he says, as I knelt in the dark beside Dad's coffin on the morning of his funeral. A prominent U.S. senator who knew Dad well, yet obviously didn't know him as well as he thought he had, told me, I knew your dad had done a lot, but he did much more than I had known. He was a good, good man. Ms. Wilson and Ms. Williams, both of whom waited in the wake line at the church for 45 minutes, told me that they were waitresses at Reeves Restaurant, Dad's regular lunch spot across from his office. Before that, Ms. Wilson had waited on him at another restaurant for 35 years. They wanted to tell me that they had never met a more polite, thoughtful man in their 40 years of work. He was such a good man, they said simultaneously. I'll never forget the rumble of the garbage truck outside my house on the day of the wake and seeing Calvin, the trash collector, standing in our driveway trying to decide whether to walk up to the front door and knock. I made it easy for him. I was on the lawn and I went toward him. He had tears in his eyes. He took off his dirty gloves, wiped his palms on his work clothes, and reached out his hands for mine. What a life, Calvin said. I read about your dad in the paper and, man, I had to put the paper down. I had to take a step back. Whoa! He helped so many people. What a good man. And I also couldn't shake my conversation with Edwin at the wake. 
He worked for U.S. Airways and had crossed paths with Dad many times during those years of travel. Not long ago, he had seen Dad struggling and had spent half an hour helping him get through the security line. Edwin waited in that line, in that line at the wake, too, and he told me that those 30 minutes were some of the most special ones in his life. I never met anyone in all my years like your father. He was such a good man. A childhood friend of mine who was Jewish called and told me Dad had written him thoughtful letters a number of times over the years. Your father knew more about Judaism than I do. He was such a mensch. And then he said, do you know what that means? Before I could respond, he blurted out, it means your father was a good man. And throughout the planning of the funeral, Jeannie Main, Dad's longtime assistant, was at every meeting. I asked her finally how long she had worked for him. Thirty-three years, she said. I volunteered on the McGovern-Shriver campaign in 72, went to work for him full-time afterward. It's a long time, I said. Yes, it is, but your dad was special. Not too many big-time lawyers would listen to their assistants. Your dad always did. He didn't always agree with me, but he always listened. He was a very good man. And that book by Mark Shriver is aptly named A Good Man. Now, it's quite a life that touches so many people who, at the end of that life, can apply the moniker, a good man or a good woman. But as impressive as that is to have people say that you're a good person, how amazing would it be to have that as God's verdict on your life? And this morning, as we continue our series over the last several months called Portraits of Grace, we're going to see the career of a man on whom the Bible gives just such an assessment. I've asked you to turn to Acts chapter 11. Please look at verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, the Bible is careful to note the source of this goodness that characterized the life of Barnabas when it says he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That is, this is a man who had come to believe. That's the New Testament word for faith, the Greek word that's translated believe and faith. It's the, the same Greek root word. He's one who had come to have faith. He's one who had come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, like all believers, he had been given the Spirit to work in his life from the inside out. And as a result of this now, over many years, he had developed this goodness that is spoken of in Acts chapter 11. The Bible tells us that all of those who have the Spirit will show this fruit because the fruit of the Spirit is indeed, among other things, goodness. The obvious goodness that characterized this man's life was so impressive that the name by which we know him, Barnabas, was actually a nickname that was given to him in keeping with the kind of man that he was. The first time that the Bible mentions this man, it says this. He is Joseph, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us means son of encouragement. 
And so the source of his goodness is the Holy Spirit, and I want us to see the result then of this Spirit-supplied goodness. And that's why we've given you an outline, as we do each week, inserted in your program. If you don't already have that out, please take a look at that. And I say there, followers of Jesus are people like this. They are, first of all, willing to help whenever needed. Willing to help whenever needed. Now, I say that for this reason. This nickname that was given to Joseph, this nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, that word translated encouragement is paraklesis. Jesus used that very term paraclete to refer to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. And it's a word that means comforter, helper, helper, exhorter, counselor. It means literally to come alongside another to supply what is needed in the life of that other person, whether a word of encouragement or an act of kindness. And Barnabas, as we're going to see, was one who did both, whatever the situation called for. So followers of Jesus are people who are willing to help whenever needed. And I say in your outline that followers of Jesus are willing to help, first of all, in word, to help in word. In chapter 11, and verse 23, notice what it says. He, Barnabas, encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And so Barnabas sees what's happening with the church in Antioch, and he speaks words of encouragement to them. He and his associate Paul did the same thing as they would later travel together, giving out the gospel. Acts chapter 13 tells us this. Many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now hear this, friends. We will only use our tongues to encourage if we, like Barnabas, see the possibilities more than we see the potential problems. Let me say again. We will only use our words, our tongues, to encourage others if we are determined to see the possibilities more than we see the potential problems. Now, here's why I say that. It's because there were many, many potential problems with what was going on in Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the world, behind only Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. And it was a notoriously immoral city, similar to Corinth and its degradation. And on top of all of that, when verse 22 of Acts 11 says, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, the news that it's referring to goes back to verse 19. Please take a look at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. When it says Greeks, it's, it's Gentiles. So most of this word of the gospel was going only to Jews, but there were some who ventured off and gave the good news of the gospel to Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, verse 21, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. 
Now, we're going to see in a bit that the Bible tells us that Barnabas was a Jew. And for a Jew like Barnabas to encounter these Gentile dogs, as they were viewed by most Jews, in this large, immoral city, now claiming Christ, he could be forgiven if he had some hesitation. Or if nothing else, we might understand that he would be tempted to tell them they needed to follow Jewish customs in order to be fully included in the church. In fact, many of you know that back in Jerusalem, from where Barnabas had been sent, there indeed were quite a few people who were insistent about that very matter. So much so that it became the subject of a a controversy and a church council in Acts chapter 15. But Acts 11 tells us that Barnabas, though he was a Jew, and though he was encountering these Gentile dogs in this immoral city, coming to Christ, it tells us he was glad. And he encouraged them. He saw the possibilities in these new converts, and he was able to look beyond the potential problems. I ask you, do you see people's problems or their possibilities? Gene Getz, who's a retired pastor, author, college and seminary professor, tells the story of a teacher that he had in college. This teacher encouraged him to pursue his academic studies. He saw that Getz had a keen mind, but the truth was Getz also had a severe stutter that made it painful to hear him speak. The thought that he would be a professor of some note, and as he became a pastor of a very large congregation and the host of a radio program, those were beyond a dream. And yet all of those are indeed what he became, and I have heard Gene Getz say in person that it was humanly because of that teacher who encouraged him in college. Followers of Jesus are willing to help others. They're willing to help others with their words. They're also willing to help others with their deeds, with their words and with their deeds. The ranks of the very first church in Jerusalem swelled so that Because there were many Jews, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost from every nation under heaven. You all remember reading that? So they're all gathered there, and many of them who were converted to Christ on the day of Pentecost apparently stayed in Jerusalem because they expected the Lord to return there soon. Well, this meant that this church now grew rapidly. And there were many people who had come from a long way off who now had to have their needs cared for. So there was a need of benevolence for a very large number of people, and collections were taken to meet that need. The Bible says this of Barnabas. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he did this. He sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it, at the apostles' feet. Now, when it says he brought the money, it's stated in a way in Greek to indicate he brought all of the money. All of the money that he received from the sale of this land, he brought and placed at the apostles' feet for the benevolence of others. Now, that's important because in the next chapter, Acts chapter 5, there is this famous scene about a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, who likewise brought an offering and laid it at the apostles' feet, but suggested in doing so that they had brought the entire amount. 
And Peter, prompted by the Holy Spirit to the truth of the matter, confronted Ananias and said, you have not only lied to men, you have, you have lied to God. And as a result, you will be laid at the feet of those here. And he died on the spot and was carried out. The Bible tells us that a bit later, his wife came. His wife didn't know what had happened. Peter said, is this all of the money from the proceed of the sale of the land? And she said, yes, it is. He has no way of knowing that we're lying about this, she thinks. And she, too, died on the spot. But Barnabas was a man who had no reason to know anybody would know different. But he brought it all, and he made it clear that he was holding nothing back for the use of those who needed it. Now, let me just pause and say this. You know, friends, we don't have the apostles with us today, and we can't do what the apostles did. But God is still at work in his church, and God is still at work in protecting his church. And God has ways to reveal sin in his church. Did you all know that? And God will make known sin in his church because he loves it and he gave himself for it. He may not strike someone dead on the spot, but he will bring the thoughts and intents of the heart to be made known in the actions that are exposed to protect his church. Now, I say that to us just as sort of an aside, to give us pause. Dear friends, what we do here is a sacred thing. And it is not to be trifled with before a holy God. In everything that we do, we do it unto the Lord. In every word we speak, to and about others, it is unto the Lord. In every deed we carry out, it is for and it is about our holy God. Make no mistake. He will protect his church. He did so then. He will do so now. But in the case of Barnabas, here's a guy who was a Levite, it tells us. A Levite who had been marvelously converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that conversion, he showed the evidence of that conversion very early in his Christian walk. As a Levite, he was one who performed religious duties at the temple in Jerusalem. And when he did this act of benevolence and laid the money at the apostles' feet in an act of complete honesty and transparency. He could not have been a Christian for very long as this is occurring in the early days of the church. So here he is, a relatively new believer, yet already is demonstrating the heart of Christ for others. We're going to see later that Barnabas is chosen for the task of taking an offering from one church to another to supply their needs. And in those days, travel was dangerous, especially if you were carrying money. Now hear this. When we are saved, when we profess to know Jesus as Savior and bow before him as our Lord, when that happens, there is to be an obvious difference in the life of that person. There is no such thing in Scripture as the person who simply mouths the words, Jesus is my Savior, for fire insurance, so to speak. 
There is the changed life, and we see that changed life in Barnabas. We see in Barnabas that followers of Jesus are willing to help whenever needed. And they are secondly, in your outline, willing to help whoever needs it. Willing to help whenever, but then willing to help whoever. The Bible records the spectacular conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Next week, we're going to look at the life of Saul, also called Paul. And the Bible records in Acts chapter 9 his spectacular conversion. Many of you know the story of Saul. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus for the purpose of killing Christians. And as he is going there with that intent, the Lord himself blinds him temporarily, and the Lord speaks to him and calls him into his service. Paul proceeds on to Damascus, but now he's armed with the gospel rather than with weapons. And three years later, he returns to Jerusalem, and as you might imagine, he doesn't have many friends in Jerusalem. I mean, you think about it, the religious leaders who had sponsored his persecution of the church have no doubt heard that he's become a traitor to their cause, so they hate him. And his new brothers and sisters in the Lord are not so sure that he's on the up and up. This may be, after all, a plot they no doubt think, in order to infiltrate their ranks and do even more harm than he's already done. And so chapter 9 says this. When he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And so Saul, relatively newly converted, three years in, desperately needs a friend in Jerusalem, and here's what the Bible says. Contrary to what everybody else was afraid of, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas must have had the confidence of the apostles in order for him to be able to take and be the sponsor, the one who recommends this man with this spotty at best background to their band. I say in your outline that followers of Jesus, as we see in Barnabas, are willing to help whoever needs it, and that includes willing to help those who have sinned, being willing to help one who has sinned. One commentator says, Barnabas was ready to hear the story of Saul. He received Saul warmly but made an investigation. He may have had confirmatory Sources available to him. But convinced of the genuineness of Saul's conversion, he took him to Peter and James, the representatives of the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, how do we know he took Saul to Peter and James to recommend him and vouch for him? Galatians chapter 1 says this. After three years, and this is Paul writing now about himself. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none other of the apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So Barnabas vouched for the genuineness of his conversion and for the effectiveness of his ministry. Acts 9 says this, He told them, these representatives of the apostles, how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Friends, a willingness to receive the testimony of one's word about their relationship with Christ, but also the evidence of their deeds, is both wise and thoroughly Christian. You all know that? 
There needs to be, for those who will be a part of God's church, there needs to be a credible testimony of salvation. Everybody got that? In order for someone to stand before the church and say, I covenant with you in membership, that individual must be able to give a credible testimony that they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the responsibility of leadership to hear that testimony and then to say, we recommend these persons for membership. You see us do that regularly. That's why we do that. Barnabas had to make an investigation, but having made that investigation, he was willing to believe the evidence. Sometimes we say someone can never change. That's apparently what many people were doing here with regard to Saul of Tarsus, not so with Barnabas. He had a willingness to receive the testimony of his word, but also had seen and investigated the deeds as a wise man, but from a Christian perspective was willing to evaluate it and then make a proper evaluation. Even though we must evaluate, we do not sit as judges over others for their past, but we must evaluate their present. And when we do, we do so like Barnabas did, wanting to believe and believing the best until proven otherwise. That's precisely what he did here. He was willing to help one who had grievously sinned. But he was also, I say secondly in your outline, willing to help those who fail. Willing to help one who has failed. And you know that failure and sin are not necessarily the same thing. All sin is failure. All failure is not necessarily sin. And we're going to see in Barnabas' life someone who failed, not necessarily sinned, but nevertheless, this man was used by God to restore him to fruitful ministry. Here's what the Bible says in verse 25, Acts chapter 11. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, remember what's going on here. He has gone to Antioch, and he sees what's happening there, and he is glad, and he encourages them. But he sent to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And if you go to the next chapter, I have it for you, uh, or, or to the next chapter, in verse 25, chapter 12 and verse 25. It says that after Barnabas and Saul finished this mission, now what mission? The one we just read about, to take this benevolence offering for the churches in Judea who are experiencing this, this famine. Verse 25, when they had finished that mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. And so now they have Mark in their entourage. This is none other than Mark, whose name is the second book of your New Testament. And the Bible tells us that he began to travel with Barnabas and with Saul. Chapter 13, the three of them were sent on a journey to proclaim the gospel, but chapter 13 and verse 13 says this. Chapter 13, verse 13. From Pamphlos, 
Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John, that is John Mark, left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, what happened to this guy? Here they are in this mission. John Mark says, count me in, I want to go. He goes with them for a period of time, and then the Bible says he turned back and left and went back to Jerusalem. Now, scholars have debated long and hard about what it was that prompted Mark to return back. And it appears that it was not simply something that most of us would see as a legitimate excuse, something like an illness or some kind of emergency back home that he had to attend to. The reason I say that is we're going to see Barnabas and Paul ended up having a great dispute about this man, John Mark. And it seems there would have been no dispute if he had this obviously legitimate reason. So there are a couple of possibilities as to why he, why he did this. One was he may not have been thrilled as a Jew from Jerusalem with this ministry to the Gentiles. And when he saw this ministry to the Gentiles going forth, he may have turned back and went back to Jerusalem. It's interesting that shortly after he goes back to Jerusalem, some people from Jerusalem come to talk to Paul and Barnabas about what they're doing. And it prompts an entire church council as to what they're doing. So that's one possibility. But another one is that he perhaps did not like the fact that his cousin Barnabas, the Bible tells us that they were related, that his cousin Barnabas was beginning to take backseat to Paul in this partnership in ministry. Now, how do we know that he's taking backseat? Notice verse 13 again, Acts 13 and verse 13. It says there, from Pamphos, Paul and his companions sailed. (laughs) Now, prior to this, it's been Barnabas and Saul. Back up in verse 2, it's Barnabas and Saul. In verse 7, it's Barnabas and Saul. In prior chapters, Barnabas and Saul. But now it becomes reversed with Paul, clearly the leader. Look down in verse 32. Or excuse me, 42. It says Paul and Barnabas. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas. And this change begins in verse 13 where it says Paul and his companions And John left. John Mark left. And what happens as a result of all of this? Just a few more pages to chapter 15. Sometime later in verse 36, chapter 15 and verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, when it says sharp disagreement... That's our word, paroxysm. They had an intense emotional engagement about this man, John Mark. As I've said, the reason was probably Mark's resentment for Paul taking over. 
And yet Barnabas and Paul remain confidants and comrades throughout the remainder of their ministry. They have this disagreement. They part ways, but they carry on the work of the Lord. And Paul continues to mention Barnabas, commend Barnabas in the future. You might jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians 9, 6, where Paul does that very thing, mentioning Barnabas. After all of this has gone down. And so Barnabas was a guy who was willing to take a back seat to Paul. Remember this, it was Barnabas who had sent for Saul in the first place. Back in chapter 11, because he saw the church in Antioch growing, and he knew that this thing was now beyond his ability, but he knew one who had this leadership ability that God could use, and he was the one who brought Saul back to Antioch. And he apparently willingly took this back seat to him. So 12 years later, after this falling out, Things had gotten better. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 4, Paul writing this, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, sends greetings. He, Mark, has proved a comfort to me, Paul. Paul says of him again in Philemon, Mark is my fellow worker. And then five years after that, In the last chapter of the last book that Paul would write, he says, Mark is helpful to me in my ministry. Barnabas willingly took this back seat, and meanwhile he took Mark along with him to restore this man to fruitful ministry. One poet has said, It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. And Barnabas was able to do that. And he restored this man to ministry. Followers of Jesus are willing to help whenever needed. They're willing to help whoever needs it, one who has sinned or one who has failed. And then thirdly, I say, they're willing to help however needed. Whenever, whoever, and however needed. We see in the life of Barnabas three things that he did. However he was needed, he was willing to be plugged in. And do his best at it. He was willing to help, I say first of all, in a role. In a particular role. And that particular, one of the particular roles that he had was that he was the first to become the leader at this church in Antioch. The church in Jerusalem in chapter 11, as we've seen, sent Barnabas to investigate what was going on in in Antioch. And when he arrived there, he saw and he was glad and he encouraged and he became the leader. And he was willing to fulfill that role. But then when he saw that it was beyond his abilities, he sought out Saul to come, and ultimately Saul becomes the leader. And even though he was not a leader like Paul, Barnabas still had a gravitas about him, a gravity, a weight about him. And this is apparent from an incident in chapter 14, where it says this, When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted, The gods have come down to us in human form. And Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, do you see by the time you get to chapter 14, Paul's the guy who's the chief speaker. He's called Hermes. But it's interesting that Barnabas is called Zeus. And here's why. Zeus was Hermes' father in Greek mythology. 
And so he had apparently this presence about him that the people recognized him as the statesman, so to speak, and Paul as the spokesman. But whatever the case, Barnabas was willing to play the role assigned to him as well as he could for as long as he could. He was secondly willing to help in a task. Willing to help in a role, but also in a task. He was, as we've seen in chapter 11, the apostolic emissary from Jerusalem to Antioch to find out what was going on. But he was also the one who was the bearer of this relief offering to be taken to the saints in Judea, as we saw at the end of Acts chapter 11. And then lastly, he was willing to not only help in a role or in any task, but also in a mission. And that mission, that marvelous mission, begins in Acts chapter 13 as the church in Antioch obeys the word of the Holy Spirit to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, and then they begin to travel together. The Bible says in Acts chapter 11 and verse 24 that Barnabas was a good man. Now, how can this man be called good when the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who does good, not even one? How can this guy be called a good man? Well, he can be called a good man because this goodness is not something that naturally came from him. This goodness is something that came to him post-conversion after the Lord Jesus moved upon his heart and drew him to himself, gave him his Holy Spirit, began then to work the fruit of the Spirit in him from the inside out. And what you see in the career of Barnabas then, this good man is the goodness of God through this man. And God calls each of his children to do that same thing. The fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, goodness. Goodness like we see in this good man. The Bible exhorts us in Hebrews chapter 13, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and do this. Imitate their faith. So how did he receive this? It was by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and then receiving the spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to those who belong to him. Look at the title at the top of your outline. This is about Barnabas. And I say, from the ivory tower to the apostles' feet. You remember he was a Levite serving in religious capacity at the temple in Jerusalem. And yet one of the first things we read about this man is he is laying this offering for this field that he has sold at the apostles' feet, willing to do whatever for whoever, whenever it was needed. But all of that only happened because the Lord Jesus Christ converted this man, changed this man. And so for all of us here, the first question is this, have we been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to God through Jesus Christ? It is the only way that you can become a good man or woman. There is no one who does good. No, not one. But there is one who is absolutely good and absolutely righteous and absolutely holy, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. He lived the life that you were to live and the life that I was to live. He died the death that we deserve. And we have a relationship with God when we come to him doing what Barnabas did, believing in who he is and what he did. So in just a moment, we're going to pray.
And you're going to have opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. For those of us who have done that, we need to ask ourselves, am I demonstrating the goodness of God in the new life that he has given to me? That goodness looks like what we see in the life of Barnabas. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for your servant Barnabas. We thank you for your work in his life because he is the product of your grace in his life. He is what he is because of the grace that you have worked, you worked in him, as all of us are. It is by the grace of God that we are what we are. There is nothing that we have that we have not received from your gracious hand. And so, Lord, we thank you for the work that has begun in us as we've come to the foot of the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ, as did Barnabas, and you begin your sanctifying work in us, making us like the Lord Jesus and showing the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Lord, I pray for anyone who came into this room without knowing you through the Lord Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving upon their heart to draw them to yourself. Help them to see that they, like Barnabas, are not good in themselves. Like none of us, there is none who is good, no, not one. But rather, Jesus is absolutely good. And when we come to him, his goodness is applied to us as we are justified before the bar of your justice. Our sins are wiped clean. We're given the righteousness of Jesus. And then in our experience, your Holy Spirit begins to work in us, to work out in us the salvation that you have provided. I pray, Lord, that we will be your disciples, your followers, like was your servant Barnabas. And I pray that you are drawing some to yourself now who likewise will use their lips and their lives to praise you. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.